0: welcome to Talaterra a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education who are these educators what do they do join me and let's find out together this is your host Tanya Marion Today my guest is Kathleen Garness, a freelance scientific illustrator and a scientific affiliate at the Field Museum, whose area of focus is plants of the Chicago region. Kathleen has received leadership awards for her work in plant conservation, and her artwork is featured in Losing Paradise, Endangered Plants Here and Around the World, an exhibition by the American Society of Botanical Artists. I interviewed Kathleen many years ago for the educational resource I founded for artists, naturalists, and educators. Back then, she was busy monitoring populations of rare species at 10 sites in the Chicago area. She was also in the early stages of creating a guide to the common plant families of the Chicago region. How are things going for her seven years later? What else is she working on? Let's find out.
1: Last year, I was asked to update Common Plant Families of the Chicago Region, which is a uh, regional guide to the flora for restoration, natural areas restoration community, to help introduce people to uh, plants for uh, the purposes of being able to identify them, to be more familiar with them in the field and some of their... Um, there are associates, some things that are like obligate insects like monarch butterflies and milkweed, for example, and uh um, sandcress and the Olymp- Olympia marble butterfly and um, plants in the APAC, think the dill family and swallowtail caterpillars. So it's a really basic introduction to botany for beginners um, For and a lot of uh, colleges are using these right now. Um, I just found out that the Master Naturalist Program that's instituted by the University of Illinois uh, uses them for teaching the Master Naturalist classes, and the Chicago Botanic Garden uses them for their joint master's and Ph.D. program with the Northwestern University. So um, this little project of mine, which originally was just supposed to help restoration volunteers learn about plants and learn about plant families grew legs pretty fast. In 2017, um, Dr. Uh, Gerald Wilhelm and his uh, collaborator, Laura Anker uh, published the new floor of the Chicago region, which is a comprehensive guide to all of the naturalized and native plants in, in, in the Chicago region. Uh, it's, It's a several county, it's a 15 county area, but it, it mostly addresses just the flora. All the entire floor of the Midwest lives here because of our unique geographic position. Anyway, Dr. Dr. Wilhelm became my collaborator last October when I was told by the Field Museum that I had to update all the taxonomy in the 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 twenty the twenty families that we had that we had done. To the new floor, of the Chicago region, or a comparable authority, and so I had to do that. And it's not; it wasn't as easy as one would think. It's not just a matter of okay, we're going to swap this, plate out, this name out for this name. Some families had to be completely reconstructed. We had to rearrange families. We had to put new families in. Um, we had to take a family out and divided up into two different families. It was, it was complex. And then um, he was gracious. He was so gracious and spent um, pretty much an entire day looking over the 20 plant families with me, with Vera, with the, his it, extraordinary attention to detail. Uh, and then I went back and I edited them. And, and now I'm doing these Dunesland guides as well. We have plans to uh, add seven more families to the 23 common plant families in the Chicago region. But uh, I got a little derailed earlier this spring by a request from Emma England, who's the president of the Lake County Audubon Society, to help build a stewardship community around Waukegan Beach, which is uh, not just a stopover place but a nesting place for the federally endangered piping plover, which is a very rare shorebird. And so she asked me if I would contribute some illustrations, and that um, I did. She was looking for maybe a page. She got five pages, and then the Seal Museum got word of it, and they wanted me to make a, an entire Dunesland Rapid Color Guide, like the Common Plant Families. So that grew legs really fast. And mm-hmm. Dr. Wilhelm, when I had sent him, I'd sent him just like, hey, look what I'm doing now he put his eagle eye to it and started and sent me back some edits saying, oh yeah, but there's, you you need to do this. I'm like, okay, we'll do that. That's great. Thank you very much. So he's, he's been an amazing collaborator. Um, one of the things that's unique about the floor of the Chicago region is that it also includes insect associates and his collaborator, Laura Anker is currently writing a, bee, a book about the, Four hundred and eighty some species of native bees, just bees that are uh, that live here in the southern Lake Michigan region, so um, between the two of them, I couldn't have a better team, plus all the staff at the field Museum and the uh, staff at the Morton Arboretum, they've been incredibly supportive and helpful in giving me the access that I need and the information that I need to make these guides. As good as they can be.
0: Wow! What a fantastic experience, Kathleen. Now you still you work full time. Uh, I work full time, and you do you freelance uh, on these projects uh, on the side, on the weekends, over summers. I, I, I do this. Uh, I do this in the evening,
1: after work. Um, I work um, on my lunch hour sometimes. I a lot of the illustrations are done digitally. Um, so I can do them from my laptop. Um, I also am a steward at two natural to uh, sites. Uh, one is a uh, public park, and the other is a uh, nature preserve. And so I have a couple Saturdays that are uh, busy uh, learning about plants and animals, and removing invasive species and monitoring rare species that are there. So, and I'm also active with plants of concern which is a regional rare plant monitoring program out of the Chicago Botanic Garden. And that's kind of how I got started in all of this. I worked as a commercial artist uh, for a number of years before my son was born. But then, you know, family and, you know, you have to put your children first. But when he was about 11, um, I found out about the the uh, botanical and scientific illustration certificate at Morton Arboretum. And I thought, well, that might be fun. You know, give me a little structure. And my son was growing up. I thought, well, this is something we could do together. So um, I signed us both up for a pencil because it was cheaper to sign him up than to hire a babysitter. I was a single mom at the time. And then I signed him up for colored pencil. And, again, it was cheaper to bring him along than have him learn because his grandmother on, on both sides is an artist. And by the time it was time to send him, a, set him up for watercolor, he said, "Mom, this is your thing, not mine. You go to class. I promise I won't burn down the house." And I thought, okay, fine. But we did. I did work out other, you know, other, other companionship arrangements for him so that I could go go to school and. You know, one evening a week, uh, when, when, the, when the classes were offered. And it was it was great, because it launched me into an entirely new uh, way of looking at the world, put a new lens in front of my eyes, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. What is your first experience with nature? Do you recall? When did you realize that nature was important to you? I think when I was, three or four years old, I was walking
1: along with my mom. I remember holding her hand. We were walking down in a really urban area where there were some kind of nice gardens behind brick fences and, and other fences. But we lived in a very modest uh, elevator building with, with just like one, one bedroom. She and my dad had a, you know, little apartment in this elevator building and there wasn't much nature around. We had Tree of Heaven, which is an invasive, horrible invasive urban tree. And we had some four o'clocks. But I remember my eyes being taken by the this little yellow oxalis stricta, this little yellow oxalis that was creeping up from between the cracks in a sidewalk. And I was too young to really have any deep thoughts about it. But I remember being taken by the beauty of this five-petaled yellow flower and just the thought of how strong it must be how resilient it must be to be able to find its way up through the sidewalk because I'd you know I'd, 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 I'd collided with the sidewalk more than more than once in my, in my top of foot so I knew how, how, how hard that was and so I, I think that started it. And so when my mom, my mom got TB um, and d- during her recovery, we went and stayed with my uncle and aunt outside of Detroit. My, that was a suburban home and she had a garden. And I was just mesmerized by her garden, especially the four o'clock and other oh, roses and, and everything she had growing around. Because I was a city girl, you know, it was grass and really nothing much else. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I was able to um, really explore nature. And then I fell in love with orchids, and then native orchids, and then drawing orchids, and the rest is kind of history. But once I found out that orchids, native orchids especially, are endangered through habitat development loss, Poaching in a deer, the encouragement of invasive species, I felt really passionate about wanting to make a difference and being a voice for the voiceless. You know, like what the Lorax says, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better, it's not. And so we stumbled, you know, into plants of concern just very serendipitously. And, um, I became a rare plant monitor and orchid monitor, and then I became a steward of a site that um, had, you know, some really interesting rare plants. And then I developed a, a relationship with the Smithsonian, and um, my artwork went to the Smithsonian, losing paradise endangered plants here and around the world, in I think 2010. Um, so. I just feel like there's some sort of, I think with most artists, there's this little inner thread that you just follow, like into the the labyrinth, and that leads you to your destiny. And then you have to find your way back out and bring back what you've learned to the world. Mm
0: -hmm. You have done some of that. As you mentioned earlier, you received a grant from the American Society of Botanical Artists to lead programs. And um, in the article that you wrote, Take Botanical Art into the Community, back in 2013, you mentioned one of the unexpected bonuses of your programs was that you develop partnerships with uh, area high schools and college teachers. I was wondering if, if you have have any suggestions on how independent educators could begin to create partnerships with local schools. What advice do you have to individuals who want to start a relationship with schools?
1: Well, I, I think you, you need to have, your artwork needs to, and your voice needs to be something that people will notice. Unfortunately, this is a very consumer-driven market and, we're very, and consumers are very picky. I've found that if I approach them Sometimes you know it's you know your your outreach falls on deaf ears. Sometimes you you reach them at exactly the right time and in space. But I think with educators, timing is everything. So right about now, when they're starting to plan for the following year, that is that is good. Unfortunately, most educators. Uh, are, t- are teaching to a very tight schedule this is what I, I've been given to understand and they're teaching to the test more often than not and any kind of extra unless you can argue um, that you're doing interdisciplinary work you know art, art plus science sometimes it's a hard it's a hard sell so what I've done is I've offered programs um, free programs or low-cost programs through a, a variety of other organizations. Sometimes faith-based organizations are open-minded to the uh, nature organizations. Uh, you, have to find, you have to find your community. You have to find your um, – often if you find one or two people, they will help make introductions to others. Any one of those mind-blowing things that happened to me last year – was I got an email from um, a, a woman who works at Notre Dame University and at the museum, the Snite Museum, saying she wanted me to come in and, and teach some botanical art classes. And I thought, who, me? Northern, Notre Dame, why? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I... I was really kind of shocked, but when I, I, I tried to, you know, say, well, but there are all these other like better, more well-known artists around here. She was no, I found your art online. We really want you. I am like, okay. So I, 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 I offered a, a class, uh, two classes there and, and it went wonderfully. One, the first class was to art teachers. She didn't tell me they were art teachers. When she started, she just said they were teachers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was good that I really overprepared. Um, it was wonderful. It was collegial, and we all had a wonderful time drawing and painting. We were, I did what we did watercolor pencil and, you know, botanical watercolor pencil, which they hadn't explored much. And the other class was for for um, students and staff and any anybody within the community that wanted to come. And that was regular uh, Prismacolor colored pencil, and you know, we had a wider range of um, interests and abilities. So that was uh, the, the foundational class that I had prepared was really very suitable for that. I think you need to look where you are and see what's available, see what sort of collaborations you can you can come up with, and the community and don't be afraid to cold call or cold email people and say here, this is something I would like to do. You know, is this something of interest? Can you find, do you think you can find some value in it? If you, if you're free during the week, during the day, often teachers will love you to come into their class and do demonstrations and uh, presentations about what you do. But you need to be kind of vetted through the school district. I mean, there's a, whole, there's a whole process that you go through to do that. So you can't just expect that, oh, I've got this great thing to offer and I'm going to go do it. You, you really need to do your homework and be persistent and believe in yourself. And then you know, explore other opportunities or possibilities as well.
0: In the previous conversation, And in your article as well, you mentioned that botany and plant science stopped being uh, taught in your local schools. And that's something that you noticed when you were already at a young age, because you were looking forward to taking botany in high school. But then it was discontinued before you started there. And I was wondering if you've noticed with all your work with the community, if you've noticed a change. Has plant sciences reappeared in the school programs or are you finding that your outreach programs like the plants of concern and the other activities that you do if that is supplementing what is no longer in school
1: Unfortunately it's gotten worse not better back in the day botany was was a required subject and it was taught in grammar school as well as in high school. Um, I have a photograph of a herbarium page that was collected by a young lady and correctly labeled as to genus and species and family for the Aurora Public Schools back in 1909, I believe. A century later, children know you know, all the corporate logos, but they can't identify a single plant except maybe a dandelion. And, you know, I would be, I would love it if you you could link to some of Dr. Wilhelm's uh, essays on his Conservation Research Institute uh, website that kind of unpacks some of why that is and what we can do about it because it's, you know, a bigger subject than just, you know, a, a few minutes. Of conversation can address but it's, it's the bottom line is if you don't know about something, you're not going to care about it. If you don't care about it, you're not going to take the trouble to be an advocate for it. If you're not an advocate for it, you're not going to work to protect it. And nature, nature which provides through its ecosystem services all the air we breathe And all the food that we eat, all the pollinators that provide 30% of all the food that we eat, and it's not just honeybees, it's native bees that are doing most of this work. If we allow the degradation of our our remnant ecosystems and and the boreal forests and the tropical forests to continue, our own future as a species is in question. This is, I mean, this is really, we've gotten to the 11th hour, the 59th minute in this concern. So trying to turn back the clock a little bit and teaching people that plants are important. Plants live in families just like people do. Plants provide directly all the the air we breathe. And directly, indirectly, all the food that we eat, and that food just doesn't magically appear at Walmart, you know plastic in a paper paper box wrapped in plastic on a styrofoam tray, you know children need children and adults need to be reminded of the cycles of nature and the way that they can help um, preserve those. And so my small work in botany to raise a little bit of awareness about this and, and get people comfortable with being in nature uh, and learn the names of the plants uh, is, is what my, my, my goal, my spiritual goal is. My friend, Greg Reitsky, when somebody asked him, um, how could he remember all the, the names, the Latin names, and even common names of all these, these plants that were out in the areas that he helped steward, he says, well, the plants are my friends. How can I not remember my friend's names? So it's good to have a personal relationship with nature. And and we know that nature has a healing influence. You go out and uh, outside, and, and doctors are now prescribing time in nature as an alternative to psychotropic drugs. Uh, we know from Richard Louvre's uh, work, in his book, "No Child Left Inside," that um, children that are exposed to nature are healthier, they're happier, they have a lower incidence of adult uh, attention deficit disorder. They can focus better, um, they have higher levels of uh, endorphins. So we need to make those connections and you know create naturephilia instead of nature phobia.
0: Mm-hmm. And to that point, I have a conversation with people, an ongoing conversation about people being afraid of nature. In your experiences, what have you found makes them uncomfortable and what have you found gets them comfortable in nature?
1: Well, I think the thing that makes them uncomfortable, it it depends on the individual. You know, think of a a young person who grows up in a house and the parents are like freaked out if a fly gets in and they go and they attack the fly or they, you know, do everything they can to eradicate ants. So anything that's like non-human and not a pet is seen as an enemy. And I totally get it. I don't want ants in my house. I don't want flies in my house. I certainly don't want yellow jackets in my house. There, there is a place for everything in this world. And, and having adults who are supportive of nature experiences is the first gateway to developing relationships with, the, you know, um, with nature f- for their children. If we can't educate the adults, then we're not going to be able to reach the children. And nature is not just going to a nature museum and seeing these, these little dioramas or these captive animals. I mean, nature is going out and taking a walk in the park. The forest of How many communities have naturalized environments that aren't just, uh, as Dr. Wilhelm describes, um, drug dependent rugs, poodle shrubs, and lollipop trees? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we but, but we're moving in a helpful direction because I think people are thinking about pollinators, they're thinking about food now. They're thinking about the monarch butterfly migration and developing pollinator gardens and and working within you know to to, to uh, fix municipal ordinances that um, don't. Allow anything that does, that you know doesn't conform to that that land that really rigid landscape aesthetic, um, and I think we just need to get kids outside more. We need to get them off their phones, off their tablets, away from the tablets, away from the computers, out into nature, going paddling, going hiking, going to nature preserves. And understanding that, you know, when you're in nature, there's, there's ways that you take care of yourself being in nature. So, you know, if you're going to go out for a walk in the woods, you're going to wear long trousers and you're going to wear long socks and you're going to tuck those trousers into your socks. You're going to wear comfortable shoes, clothes that, you know, okay. Maybe it's okay if they get a little dirty, Um, but but so you take you know and you you know put put some you know lemon lemon oil or you know whatever lemon eucalyptus oil to to re- repel any any mosquitoes. So you, you you take care of yourself so that you can enjoy your time in nature. But finding a nature guide, somebody who can help you make that connection, teach you the names of the plants and animals, I think is uh, the, the the first step. To developing those relationships, it's the relationship that that brings with it the love and the connection. One of my friends is a birder, and I said, "Well, how did you become a birder?" He so "Well, my mom was a birder, my dad was a, my 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 grandma was and grandpa were birders before that." I mean, so a lot of this knowledge goes down generations. But more, if it skips a generation, then what happens? We lose that. We lose the wisdom of the ancients. We lose the wisdom of what Dr. Wilhelm calls the grandmother plants and the women's plants, the plants that heal, the plants that feed us, the plants that create habitat for the, 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 the birds and the animals that we need. You know, the Native Americans, the Native, the Native peoples on all continents, for millennia, for millions of years, lived in harmony with nature. They managed nature. They managed nature and they lived within it. um, And they, they appreciated that it provided everything that they need. We've become, just in the last hundred years, completely divorced from that. And with mechanized factory farming, taking away even that human connection to nature... It, it becomes uh, even more alarming because the, the the people who live on the land have traditionally been the ones who have had those deepest connections with nature because they're out there all the time. They're outside and they tending the, the the crops and the animals in the field, and they're aware of the the cycles and the seasons. And they don't need to rely on no a weather report. They they can feel it in their bones.
0: What do you think, then, what can nature preserves do, nature preserves and other related uh, venues do to make themselves more appealing to families?
1: Well, nature preserves aren't there for families. Nature preserves are there to protect biodiversity. Although Leopold had a wonderful statement, he says the first principle of intelligent tinkering is to keep all the parts. And... And, and nature preserves don't—they don't need us, other than they—they they need us. They need us to be aware and to appreciate and to be protective. Um, there's a, 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 na, a, a movement that is um, kind of getting started. My my friend uh, uh, Amelia Gexi is um, is involved with. Um, you know, a children in nature movement. I can't think of the the, the, the program right now, but he' uh, he helps m- make connections between families and um, and nature venues and educational tools so that we can blur the borders somewhat between our homes and and the, the, the nature preserves and the forest preserves. Um, so that, that children, if you, if you, for example, if you plant native plants in your garden and you learn those names and you learn those connections, and you, then you see them out in the forest preserves, then they become like, um, running into a familiar face at a party, so, so to speak. Um, and. And I, I think that just getting people out there and teaching them to respect nature, not make new trails with dirt bikes or, or off-road vehicles, but to respect the, the, the paths that are there, get out to uh, nat- natural areas, work days and events and celebrations. One of the things that happens every year at Som Woods is a, um, winter solstice or new year's bonfire and all the families come out for this we get four or five hundred people in the woods and they all the buckthorn that's been cut over the season has been stacked into this great big pile 15 feet high and eight feet across and um probably five or six feet deep and they they light it up, and they they have a bagpiper bringing all the children in, and they have cookies and cocoa, and the kids play games, and they get to see this this immense kind of primal celebration of of uh, the return of the light and there's school to how to be you know safe around something like that, to be sure. But it's something that they look forward to, and as they get older, then they bring their friends and And so I think you have to build community around nature. This is what's happening in the Chicago region. A, a steward and advocate Steve Packard, about whom they wrote the book, uh, Miracle under the the Oaks, uh, has been planting congregations of stewards in the Chicago area for um, probably 30, 30, or 40 years now. And in Chicago region has some of the highest biodiversity, um, in terms of plants and animals of anywhere in the United States. Um, and so even though Illinois is second only to Iowa and percentage of natural areas lost to development, we also have one of the most active natural areas, um, Educational and uh, restoration communities. Hmm. So that gives us hope. And then we, you know, we send people out to you know other other states. We educate them and we send them out. Um, but there are not a lot of college programs um, in, in in field botany. Um, I know uh, Dr. Alan Weekly. Um, teaches seal teaches botany uh, Justin Thomas he has an institute of, of, of botanical uh, education in Missouri but they are kind of few and far between and we need to build we need to build capacity and we also need to build interest because the more interest there is the more more these teachers will arise from a myth. I know Chris Bender down in Southern Illinois, and Paul Markham with the Illinois Natural History Survey are very active in online communities. We have a Facebook group called Illinois Botany. And they'll answer just about any reasonably intelligent questions that you have. And they have just amazing resources available. So we're, we're trying through a variety of means to make resources available that aren't necessarily available through traditional school uh, platforms. Mm-hmm. But we have to get kids also excited about it. So. And then they'll figure out how to go find that information out there because, you know, kids, people are wonderful that way.
0: <laughs> yes. What's next for you? You are very, very busy, and I suspect there are... Insects and life cycles and other wonderful things in your near future.
1: <laughs> well, the Dunesland the Dunedin guide grew from just this little thing, you know, that was going to be a couple pages for Emma England, uh, to five pages to a new rapid color guide that's going to be twelve pages, um, and then after that, um, right now I'm, I'm working on the sedges um and sedges are really complex there's over almost 700 different species of sedges in the United States and they're all really different wow I mean if you look, but if you look at them it's like that's a sedge okay how do you, you know anyway they're they're one of those things that you know you really need you almost need an expert mind to 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 to, to uh, get your head around them but I, i'm doing my best to illustrate the ones that i'm going to do for these different kinds so there's the Doolin One Guide and the, um, the Nature Conservancy has asked me to illustrate some more bandanas, which is another thing that I have done three of. Um, the, the bandanas are uh, educational tools that they distribute to um, uh, people that go to the workdays, um, natural areas workdays and other events that they sponsor. Um, and the most recent one was uh, Prairie Plants and Their Pollinators. The next one will be dunesland uh, plants and their associates. Uh, then we're going to do a wetlands one um, and uh, a woodlands one. And we may, those may turn into some more rapid color guides at some point in the future. I don't know, um, but as long as I have breath and I have my I have eyes, uh, I want to keep drawing plants and teaching people about the valuable connections between people and nature and, and plants and, and in particular. Someday I would like to have some time to get out and just like paint some trees, draw some beautiful, majestic, open-grown oak trees. Cause that was something I wanted to do when I was 12 that I never got the courage to do. Cause it was like, Oh my God, how do you draw a tree? <laughs> <laughs> um, and make it look the way you want it to look. Um, Stanley Maltzman, by the way, on the cover of one of his books drawing trees, drew a tree the way I wanted to draw a tree. So maybe it's already done, and I don't need to do it. Oh no, um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I I'd love to learn to um, do do field sketching. At you know, at some point, I I learned when I my artist in residence at what the Cook County Forest deserves that uh, uh, painting a landscape was actually harder for me than painting the most complex orchid because with, it's, it's almost the reverse of what you're doing. You're trying to take something that is very complex and simplify it. Um, mm-hmm. re- re- whereas with a plant, you're taking something very singular and looking at all, looking at and illustrating all the complexity of it. So it, they're almost like opposite uh, approaches. And some people just know how to do that. And I will probably have to spend a lot more time working at it to get any level of good that would make me happy. So I don't even know if I'm going to do it, but it's something that's on my list once all the other stuff is done
0: (laughs) and so when will you be a full-time scientific illustrator do you think not and not that you aren't already you are full-time in in like every way i can imagine all the things that you are involved in but when will you retire and then take on a new adventure
1: um god is in charge of that i don't know um You know, the, the, the reality is you have to have some income, you know, even in, in retirement, uh, most people I know, unless they've just been really good financial planners, um, you, you have to, you have to figure out some way to continue to support yourself. And that, um, I do sell some of my artwork, um, but it would be nice. It would be nice to have a full-time or part-time job, doing what I love to do best, or win the lottery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'll put that out there to anybody that's listening. Um, <laughs> and and it, but everybody that I know that is an artist works really hard and often has. Um, you know, a a, a gainful job that has allowed them to do what they love to do. And uh, that's always been my case. And I think it's good to separate those things, too, because when you start doing something for the money of it, sometimes that takes away a little bit of the love because you're putting somebody else in charge of the the creative process and your output and your, and your time frame, And I you know, that, that, that can be complicated, yeah. you know, because it's just, it takes time. It's a learning process. If you want to do an excellent job illustrating plants, you just have to take the time that it needs. And, and, and that time, there's, there's no, magic time frame for that because it really depends what your resources are and what your goals are and and where you know your abilities your experience I think the, finding joy within the process itself is key to me well, as long as I have these rich and empowering collaborative relationships with some of the most amazing scientists in our region as long as they keep opening my eyes to the wonders of nature and helping me be a better artist, a better voice, a better steward, then I'm happy. I don't need to change anything about my life at all.
0: Learn more about Kathleen's work, download her Guide to Plant Families of the Chicago Region and explore other resources by visiting the show notes for this episode at talaterra.com.